Ukraine rushes drinking water to flooded areas as the environmental damage mounts from the recent dam break. We already know for sure that we would have to be dealing with oil spills in the petroleum products which end up in the water. More than 150 tons of machine oil was in the uh, Kahovka hydroelectric power plant. Plus, how might the dam collapse impact the war itself? It's a constraint on what Ukraine can do now. The lower Nepa River is now flooded, so their ability to maneuver across that river in any kind of offensive is now much more limited than it was previously. And later in the program, how a local theater director is helping Ukrainians find some sense of normalcy. Today is Thursday, June 8th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Lori London in Washington. Authorities continue rushing to evacuate hundreds of people stranded by floods from the collapsed Kakovka Dam in southern Ukraine. Drone footage of the dam shows a ruined structure, devastation, and no sign of life. Associated Press correspondent Karen Shamus reports. The footage was filmed by an Associated Press team that flew a drone over the Kakhova Dam on the Dnieper River. The video shows the ruined structure falling into the flooded river, as well as hundreds of submerged homes, greenhouses and even a church. Most notably, throughout the footage, there was no sign of life. Russia accused Ukraine of bombarding the structure, which was under Moscow's control, while Ukraine alleged that Russia blew it up from within. I'm Karen Chemas. And I got an update from Anna Chernikova in Kyiv on Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's visit to the Kherson region, where thousands of people are dealing with the effects from the flooding following the dam's destruction. Anna, tell us about his visit. He came to personally inspect uh, the evacuation, how the evacuation is ongoing. Uh, he visited the main evacuation spot uh, in the city. He met with locals. Uh, he also held meeting with local authorities and experts to discuss damages. And also he instructed local authorities to make everything possible to compensate the damages to people as much as possible. So it was quite a fruitful meeting, according to his statement afterwards. He also visited Mykolaiv on his way, uh, because uh, Mykolaiv region particularly, also affected by this uh, disaster. And Anna, what's the latest on the ground with all the flooding and rescue efforts? The latest information that we have from local authorities, it was confirmed that the water level has risen to 5.6 meters uh, in the area. This is as of Thursday, under the water currently there is 600 square kilometers of land and this includes 32% of the right bank of the Dnieper River of Kherson region which is under Ukrainian control and 68% of the left bank. Uh, left bank is currently under Russian control. The evacuation is still ongoing however evacuation from the left bank is uh, more complicated because Ukraine cannot evacuate uh, people from that area due to Russian control of the area uh, but today the Minister of Foreign Affairs 
Affairs of Ukraine, Mr. Kuleba, confirmed that Ukraine and UN agreed regarding the evacuation from occupied territories on the left bank of Dnipro River in Kherson region. And uh, currently, both Ukraine and UN are waiting for Russian approval and Russian agreement on that because UN needs safety guarantees from Russia that in order to conduct this evacuation from the left bank. Anna Chernikova reporting for VOA from Kyiv. The destruction of the dam has left tens of thousands of people without drinking water. Many are homeless, crops are ruined, landmines have been displaced, and the stage set for long-term electricity shortages. It's also being called an ecological catastrophe. And while it's too soon to know the full scale of the impact on the natural ecosystem, experts say it's massive. I spoke with Anna Ackerman, a board member with EcoAction, one of Ukraine's leading environmental civic organizations. How serious is this? situation. Some of Ukrainian experts uh, are already comparing the consequences to those of uh, Chernobyl and the Chernobyl disaster in terms of the impact on the environment. Of course, it would be limited in space in terms that most of the consequences would have to be bared by Ukraine itself, not by the neighboring countries or the world. But the scale is huge. Ukraine is also second largest country in Europe, so it is big. One of the concerns is the lack of fresh water and the water for irrigation. So there was more than 30 systems, uh, irrigation systems linked to this reservoir of the of the Kachovka Dam. And according to the Ukrainian government, they provided irrigation on more than 500,000 hectares of land with millions of tons of grains and oil seeds that were produced there and harvested. Then it would, of course, affect both Ukraine and the world in terms of the food security issues. It's just, you know, one of the issues we can look at in terms of the scale. What about the environmental damage itself to the ecosystem? When we look at environmental consequences, first and foremost, we are looking at pollution that would affect the people and the nature and the soils and water and everything. The experts have already identified more than 60 hazardous industrial facilities in the territories which are potentially would be affected by flooding. So around 20 of those are in the area of heightened flood risks. And some of those facilities are on the Ukrainian controlled territories, while there are some which are located, you know, beyond our control. So some of them, you know, we would we cannot get to them. So we would only observe from the satellite imagery what happens, which is actually the case already now. So some of the facilities include a whole variety of hazardous substances, including ammonia and antibiotics and biodiesel and, and kerosene and oils and solvents and chlorine, really lots of different things. And we already know for sure that we would have to be dealing with oil spills and because in the petroleum products, which end up in the water, more than 150 tons of machine oil was in the uh, Kachovka hydroelectric power plant because all of the power plants need oil to run basically the equipment. So we would have to be dealing with, with the oil, whatever it ends up because again, now everything is moving. So in a week or two, when everything, when the water level goes down, the situation stabilizes, we would then have to see for ourselves where the oil is, what kind of pollution is there, is out there to then be uh, making the plan of mitigation and, and what, what kind of pollution we would have to be dealing with. For now, we are observing, we are saving people and the animals. Of course, this is humanitarian catastrophe, this for sure. We're talking about tens of thousands of displaced people. And then with time, we will see all of the horrible consequences 
with flooded forests, with all of the wildlife that was affected and will be affected. What do you think the long-term impact to the environment and ecosystem there? The scale of issues and the number of issues Ukraine would have to be dealing with is enormous. Our organization has been tracking the cases of potential damages to the environment of the of Russia's full-scale invasion since 24th of February last year. And we have more than 1,000 of such cases in the list. There is even more since 2014, when Russia invaded first time. The Ukrainian government is also collecting uh, all of this information, and they have more than 2,000 cases of potential damages to the environment. And the government is also trying to put a price tag to explain a bit better perhaps what it actually means and how much Russia would have to pay to restore this environment. And we are talking about, well, before the Kakhovka Dam disaster, the price tag was standing at $50 billion. US dollars, Ukraine would not be able to, to find these resources by itself. And the most important thing in environment, we would have to be setting priority. Which territories in Ukraine to rebuild first? Which nature conservation areas are more important than the others? Because we would just simply not have enough resources to be rebuilding everything. It would take decades and generations to, you know, at least come to certain normality, so to say, to see Ukraine thriving again and Ukraine's nature thriving again. I can give you just one example. Since 2014, in the territories occupied by Russia in the east of Ukraine, there is many, many uh, coal mines that, that were flooded with all of the chemicals and pollutants and toxic elements that came up with all of the you know toxic waters from the mine and just staying there. And the question would be, what do you do with that? Already before 2022, you know, many environmental experts were talking about the environmental catastrophe in Donetsk and Lugansk regions because of those flooded mines, because simply Russia did not want to pay for anything. And with their disregard to human lives, human health, uh, this was, of course, was not solved. And it will be Ukraine, once we will restore our territorial integrity, it would be Ukraine who would have to be dealing with all of those consequences. On some of them, it's even, it's probably impossible to put an actual price tag because restoring environmental replanting a tree it's not something that takes you know a day or two each tree each species has also the value which goes beyond the monetary values of course it will be enormous thanks so much for your time that was anna ackerman a board member with eco action one of ukraine's leading environmental civic organizations the dam collapse has also brought a dramatic new dimension to ukraine's war with russia now in its 16th month, I talked about the implications for the conflict going forward with Michael Purcell, a professor at George Washington University and a retired lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Marines. It's already been looking like something has been shifting, whether it's a more aggressive stage of this war or the counteroffensive has begun and now this. What do you think this situation means now for the war in general? Does it continue to escalate? Does Russia have more pushback from international leaders? What's your perspective on this situation? It's a distraction from what the Ukrainians wanted to be doing right now. So 
in terms of the strategic focus, uh, we've all been watching and sort of waiting for the, the much anticipated counteroffensive. There's a significant amount of Western support that's gone into that. So I think they're under political pressure to show some results. And instead of talking about that, today we're talking about this ecological disaster on a scale that's hard to contemplate and it's going to add to the, the, the reconstruction costs. So it's, a, it's, it's not as if it's an, an, an important event, right? But it is a diversion from what they want to be accomplishing. And if we keep in tabs, this notches uh, an advantage to, to Russia in that sense um, as the Ukrainians attempt to deal with humanitarian fallout. Let me list these out kind of kind of quickly then, right? Let's think about three things. One is, is a strategic diversion away from uh, Ukraine's project goals, which is to get Russia out of Ukraine. Secondly, it's a constraint on what what Ukraine can do now operationally. So the lower uh, Dnipro or Dnepr River is, is now flooded. So their ability to maneuver across um, that river uh, in any kind of offensive is now much more limited than it was previously. And then lastly, it's another opportunity for the Ukrainians to, sadly, at, the, at a significant price, make their case to the, to the international community that Russia is an irresponsible actor. Do you expect that they will continue to attack Ukrainian infrastructure on this scale? Or do you think that the condemnation will be harsh enough that they may think twice? At the risk of sounding cynical, and I, I don't say that flippantly, but I've become accustomed to obfuscation and Russian behavior being in bad faith. So what does that mean? It means that we would be unwise to consider anything more than this to be a red line. It, it may be, right, if, if we talk a lot about whether Russians use nuclear weapons and the question sometimes is would they use tactical, battlefield, smaller yield weapons, nuclear weapons. And our, our assumption is they wouldn't because of the, the blowback in the international community that they would receive. Um, this is something less than that, but it's it's not dissimilar, right? I mean, it is a significant again, uh, the impact of this is something like you would have from a tactical nuclear weapon in terms of scope and, and depth. The Zaporizhia nuclear power plant right there, right, which is the largest in, in Europe, is at greater risk now. And um, the idea that somehow it could it could be subject to fighting or destruction and turn into effectively a, a massive dirty bomb now, I think is closer to the forefront of our mind. So in terms of what the Russians might do, I think this you could look at this, a military planner might look at this and say, this is the first step up the, a ladder of escalation towards, um, not to overstate the case, but towards nuclear weapons or, or, or effects that are similar to nuclear weapons through environmental disaster or, or something similar. Do you see this setting Ukraine back? Yeah, I think, and if, let's think about near term and long term, right? And in the near term, you know, once again, it's a diversion from what they want to be doing right now, in part because they care about their people. And I think they're probably thinking very hard about how to provide services to the people affected. It prevents them again from focusing on on military operations. Uh, but in the long term, um, you know, the question is, does it set Ukraine back? The answer is certainly yes. The fallout ecologically from a humanitarian perspective and economic perspective in terms of the effects on agriculture. If you're a strategic thinker, and I think the Ukrainians have shown themselves to be such, they're involved in a campaign. We talk about counteroffenses, but they're really involved in a campaign to liberate their country and to restore it. And this event was a huge blow to their ability to restore Ukraine, both in terms of sovereignty, but also in terms of economic viability. There's going to be a price to this event, a cost, the reconstruction or re restoration um, of what's what's possible. That is, is significant. It's hard to, to contemplate today as we're thinking about the individual fates of, of Ukrainians affected. But if you look at the World Bank estimates for you know what it's going to cost to, to reconstruct Ukraine after the war, maybe talking about a 20% increase to that, to that number. Michael Purcell, professor at George Washington University, and retired lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Marines. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. 
I'm Lori London. U.S. President Joe Biden hosted British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak for talks at the White House Thursday. At a news conference Wednesday, White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre said the two leaders have a big agenda. Ukraine is going to be uh, at the top of discussion. It is NATO, and uh, as you know, NATO, the NATO alliance has been uh, strengthened because of the president's uh, uh, because of the president's uh, leadership. And so, of course, Ukraine and Russia will be uh, top of mind and discussed. Sunak's visit is his first to the United States since becoming prime minister in October, but he and Biden have already met three times this year. Russia urged judges at the United Nations' highest court Thursday to throw out a case brought by Ukraine against Moscow over the 2014 annexation of the Crimean Peninsula and the arming of rebels in eastern Ukraine before Russia's full-scale invasion in February 2022. Meanwhile, some legal experts say South African government officials could be charged as accessories to war crimes should they not arrest Russian President Vladimir Putin if he visits Johannesburg for the summit of the BRICS Group of Emerging Economies in August. The International Criminal Court has issued a warrant for Putin's arrest for war crimes allegedly committed in in Ukraine. As a member of the ICC, South Africa is obliged to take the Russian leader into custody, but the government says it will not. We hear more now from Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. Several sources in South Africa's ruling African National Congress, including former President Khalema Motlante, say Russian President Vladimir Putin will not attend the August meeting in person. This, they say, is partly because that would make the South African government vulnerable to prosecution or civil suits. International criminal court law experts have told VOA that South Africa's Minister of International Relations in particular would be at risk of prosecution for aiding and abetting a war criminal. The ICC indicted Putin for war crimes following Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year. International Relations Minister Naledi Pandor says she looks forward to hosting her Russian friends, including Putin, in August. He's accepted an invitation to attend the summit of the BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. The ANC has close ties with Moscow. The former Soviet Union supported the ANC's struggle against apartheid, and the party has refused to condemn Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Pretoria joined Russia in military exercises this year, and Moscow has promised South Africa increased economic and military cooperation. Emil Mayberg is a South African advocate who advises several governments on ICC law. It also prohibits anybody from impeding the work of the International Criminal Court. And my view is that by not executing an arrest warrant as we are obliged, we are actually impeding the work of the International Criminal Court. Furthermore, the statute is very clear that victims of war crimes can claim reparations from the perpetrators. And in my view, it would certainly be a good case to make out by a Ukrainian victim to say, listen, I've suffered because of your failure to uphold your part of the convention, uh, and therefore you owe me money. The government says its lawyers are exploring ways for Putin to attend the summit in person without being arrested. But Mayberg says they have no room for maneuver, and the sooner they move the BRICS summit meeting online or to China, the better for South Africa.
that is the best that we can do. We have to be honest with our friend Vladimir Putin and say, buddy, I'm sorry, we have to arrest you. Best is you don't come here. Moving the, the meeting elsewhere is a capitulation, but I think that's the best that the government can do to avoid having to arrest Vladimir Putin coming to South Africa. BRICS foreign ministers recently met in South Africa and called for what they said should be a rebalancing of the world order away from Western nations and pledged to provide global leadership in addressing inequality and insecurity. They also discussed expanding the group to include other nations. Just two days ago, Minister in the Presidency Kumbuzo Nachaveni told ENCA News South Africa would not surrender its right to host the BRICS summit. The government says it alone will decide on Putin's attendance, with President Cyril Ramaphosa set to make a pronouncement soon. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. Thousands of Ukrainians fleeing the war have found refuge in the small town of Uzerod in Ukraine. A local theater director there decided to stage a Shakespearean play, King Lear, to help refugees find some normalcy during the war. And they were surprised by what happened next. Angelina Bagdasarian has the story narrated by Anna Rice. Ukraine, March 2022. Uzgorod train station. One after another, trains with evacuees roll in. Train Poltava Uzgorod is arriving to track number three. Train Kharkov Uzgorod is arriving to track number two. Economist Nikita Markovsky also arrived in Uzgorod on one of the trains. I was born in Crimea, and when Russia annexed it, I moved to Kyiv, and then it started again. Kyiv was being shelled, so I moved to Uzgorod. Why there? Because it's the safest place in Ukraine. Local theater director Vyacheslav Yegorov worked at a shelter in Uzgorod and decided on another way to help the incoming refugees. He decided to stage Shakespeare's King Lear and picked all the actors from among the displaced Ukrainians. The play was such a giant success that Ukrainian cinematographers made a documentary about it. And what's more, for Markovsky and his fellow amateur actors, salespeople, students and engineers, being involved in a theater performance became a sort of therapy, says Palina Herman. She is the producer of the documentary King Lear, how we searched for love in wartime. Theater helped them heal, helped them get through the trauma, because, of course, it was a shock for everyone. Many lost their homes in Bucha and Mariupol. They had nothing left, they lived in a shelter, having lost their home, their job, not knowing what to do, and then suddenly they stumble upon the theater and find something new, find a place for themselves. I'm an English teacher by training. I taught at Lyceum No. 3 in Irpin. Ukrainian director Dmitro Hryshko's documentary made its debut at the Southeast European Film Festival in Los Angeles, California. We had this year 57 films in, uh, you know, uh, 56 in competition because this is an international film uh, competition festival and we cover 20 countries, so from Ukraine in the northeast, including uh, Georgia, Armenia and all of the greater Balkan area. 
In addition to the documentary's reception, the play was so successful, the actors went on a tour across Ukraine. We organized a tour throughout Ukraine, they got to go to Kyiv, and that made the actors so happy. They feel inspired, aren't really healed, and this is what our documentary is about. We want to show what it means to be Ukrainians, that despite all the hardships, we don't give up. After King Lear's success, the Uzhgorod Theatre has already started working on other plays. For Angelina Bogdasaran in Los Angeles, California. NRI's Real News. And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date, though, with continuing coverage on Ukraine and news from around the world 24 hours a day at voanews.com. And on social media, just follow VOA News. On behalf of the entire Flashpoint Ukraine team, thanks so much for listening. Until next time, I'm VOA's Lori London. Washington, bam, 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 zip, D.C.